begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, on this wonderful sunny Sunday morning. Uh, wonderful seeing all your faces here today. Um, we have, so we had an actual spring this year, right, with rain and everything, and I think it has now turned to an actual summer, right? Um, but for us, especially I think out west here and in Colorado, um, we think of the four seasons, but there are other seasons as well, right? What are the other seasons that we sometimes pay attention to out west here? What was that? Football season, yes, that one, yeah, that is correct, that is correct, yep, yep. What else? What was that? Hunting season, there you go. Basketball season, I love it, yes. Fishing season, but fishing season, is it really a season? It's year-round, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, yeah, it's always in season, yeah. Um, yeah, well, others, others. Tornado season, right? Lately, we've seen, we've seen uh, um, tornadoes in Highlands Ranch uh, throughout the southeast as well. Uh, my brother lives in Miami, Miami, so you want to know what they pay attention to? Hurricane season, right? Um, and as we fast forward to July, end of July and August, what season do we pay attention to out west? Fire season. Yeah, fire season, right? So uh, as much as we, we have... Uh, we have enjoyed all of the rain and, and we needed that rain and we want that rain. What then happens, right, is the sun comes out and humidity levels drop, uh, water levels drop, and we enter into fire season. Now, uh, I don't know if some of you maybe have already done your summer vacations. Maybe some of you have summer vacations planned. Um, but how many of you have ever driven through Yellowstone National Park? All right. Yeah, most... Most of us have out, out west here, right? Um, one of the things that, that kind of always strikes me as I drive through Yellowstone um, is kind of seeing, it's a beautiful way to see the history of the land through which you've driven. Now, uh, some of you that maybe have a little more uh, gray hair on the tops of your head will remember this. But in 1988, Yellowstone National Park burned like crazy. Okay? Some of you maybe even remember it to some degree, right? So uh, in 1988, uh, beginning in probably late July, especially through August and in September, uh, Yellowstone National Park was, was on fire. By the end of that, that kind of burning season, they had lost 800,000 acres of Yellowstone National Park, right? 800,000 acres had burned. Uh, on one particular day, um, they called it Black Saturday. Uh, 150,000 acres burned on one single day, right? So you can maybe imagine the intensity of it. Um, maybe some of you have seen it. We've for sure all seen the smoke at times, right? Uh, but in Yellowstone, this was, this was devastating. Now, um, we're kind of thinking back a little bit. But at the time, there were those that said, Yellowstone National Park will never be the same. There were those that said that this, this was literally a, a tragedy of historic proportions for a, a park that, as a nation, we've, we've grown up around and, and enjoyed, right? They said, we don't know that the, the, the trees, right, the growth in Yellowstone National Park is ever going to be able to recover from this. 
Primarily what burned were lodgepole pines. And Yellowstone uh, was a little unique in that regard. Uh, some of you maybe know a little more about this than I do, but, but it, it's higher alt- altitude, and so lodgepole pines um, were able to grow longer um, and bigger uh, and more widespread than maybe other parts of the world. And so these lodgepoles, um, they estimate were 200 to 250 years old by the time Yellowstone started burning uh, in 1988. It was a unique situation. It was a remarkably dry time of year. They had been in drought. There was no rain. The entire park was a tinderbox, and it went up. Uh, this is this is the uh, um, kind of the gift shop near Old Faithful, and you can see how close it came to actually burning down. If any of you have been to Old Faithful and seen these buildings. This is how close it came. They called out the military to try to save buildings, save structures, and for sure save human life. But the entire park burned. Now, the amazing thing is, if you've been to Yellowstone Park lately, if you're going to go this summer, um, the reality of it is, is that it has come back, hasn't it? In fact, it's beautiful. But in many parts, you're going to see images like this. Right? Lodgepole pines that burned, that were gone, and that some people thought would never, ever recover. But you can see what's beneath them. Pine after pine after pine, right? It's kind of an amazing thing because at the time many thought this couldn't happen. But what they came to find out, especially with lodgepole pines and their seeds, Uh, and hopefully I can say this word right, Um, they're pyrophytic seeds, okay? Now, what that means is that when those fires burned through Yellowstone, um, it killed off all of the living trees, right? But what it wasn't able to kill were the pine cones and all of the seeds. In fact, uh, because these seeds are pyrophytic, what it actually meant was many of those lodgepole pine, pine cones were sealed with resin and when the heat surrounded them, when fires came roaring through, it actually made those seeds open and pop. That's why you see the growth today, right? I think it serves as a pretty good illustration for us and our text that we're going to look at today. Apostle Paul is going to talk about seasons, in season and out of season. He's going to talk to us as believers uh, um, and sometimes what we view in the world around us. And I'd venture to say that there are moments when we, when you personally maybe feel as though your life is on fire. I think there are moments when we feel nationally or culturally our world is on fire. Here's the really beautiful thing. God uses all of those seasons, and in fact, he uses you and the seeds that come from your Christian living, ultimately to share growth, life, and Christ. So that's what we want to look at this morning. Uh, our text is from Second Timothy. Uh, you're welcome to follow along in your bulletin if you'd like. Uh, I'll have some of the scripture and some of the text on our screen as well. Um, but Second Timothy is written by the Apostle Paul. This is a painting from Rembrandt. Uh, Rembrandt had kind of a, uh, an affinity for the Apostle Paul, and Rembrandt did lots and lots of paintings, um, but he did more paintings of the Apostle Paul maybe than any other biblical uh, character or scene within the Bible. 
Um, and this is one of Rembrandt's painting of the Apostle Paul. And you can, you can see that he's got a pretty substantial beard, right? And this is an older Paul, isn't it? This is a Paul that has a little bit of age on him. Uh, gray hair and gray beard. And that was purposeful from Rembrandt. And I think it serves as a good image for us in our text from 2 Timothy here today. Paul writes this letter to a young pastor named Timothy. And most scholars will say that, that uh, 2 Timothy was written late in the 60s AD, so um, that it was written later in Paul's life. Now, if you know anything about Paul's life, you know that it wasn't necessarily always easy, right? So there were moments where he was run out of town, moments when there was attempted stonings, when he was thrown in jail. Specifically, Paul did two longer stints in Roman jail within his ministry. The first one, we might kind of characterize as house arrest. So this was in the city of Rome in Italy, right? Uh, first one was a little more of a house arrest. So he was able to write letters to people. Uh, he was able to have people come and visit him, those kind of things. The second imprisonment was not like that. It was more uh, um, prison as you would think about it, right? He was isolated. He was alone. And so many scholars believe that Paul wrote 2 Timothy in his old age from prison and clearly saw that the end of his life was coming near. Now, if all of that date and timing are correct, he would have had good reason to. When we talk about, sometimes we look at the world around us, we look at the culture around us, and it feels, it at times can feel as though things are burning to the ground. Um, Paul can empathize with you. And specifically, when he was writing this letter to Timothy, because as he looked around the culture in which he lived and then maybe the cell in which he was at in the city of Rome, it looked as though literally the world was burning. At that time, there was uh, an emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, or the Roman Empire rather, by the name of Nero. And some of you maybe know that name um, from your, your, your time in, in history and things like that. But Nero was arguably one of the most um, evil despicable Roman emperors that the Roman Empire had ever had. And that's saying something because there were a lot of really bad emperors in the Roman Empire. But Nero uh, was especially insidious uh, in enacting revenge and in political manipulation. And so about this time, um, Nero was doing that exact thing in the city of Rome uh, and, and in the Roman Empire. One of the historical uh, accounts that we have is that uh, um, the entire city of Rome burned. In fact, it burned for 10 days straight. So we talk about wildfire season, right? Imagine being in a city that was burning for 10 days straight. Now you think of their construction, the timber, the close houses, all of those kind of things, and you can understand how it would spread from house to house, from your house to your neighbors, to your neighbors, to your mom and dads, to everybody that you know, right? So for 10 days straight, Rome literally burned. Now, as to the origins of that fire, we, we don't exactly know. Many, though, believe that Nero actually set that fire himself. See, there were a couple political maneuverings that he was trying to get around. See, the Senate was blocking certain projects that he wanted to have done. But if a fire roars through and clears land, guess what? You can build your palaces. You can restart things. You can increase taxes. You can do all of those things, right, in the face of a national tragedy. 
But there was one more thing that Nero decided to do. He decided to blame the fire on this new religion, these new people who were followers of the way known as Christians. Now, with all that said, as Apostle Paul writes this letter to a young pastor named Timothy, I think on some level we can feel the weight that is upon his shoulders. He would have seen it around him. He would have felt it. He would have lost um, family members and loved ones and colleagues. All of that leads us in Paul to write these words to Timothy. But here's the really amazing thing about our text today. This isn't a woe is me text. This isn't a, um, you know, everything's, everything's going out the window, nothing's ever going to be good type text. This isn't a text that is bitter and angry. This isn't a text that is secluded and isolated. What's amazing about Paul's words to Timothy and to you and I here this morning is that it is, it is steady, it is resolute, and it is remarkably joyful and hopeful. So let's jump into it, okay? Uh, we're going to look at three different things in our text. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about who. So who are we talking about here? Um, Paul gives us in be- beautiful words of how. So how are we going to share God's word in season, out season? And lastly, we're going to talk about why, right? Why we would do that or what we can hope to expect. So um, let's jump into the first couple verses of our text. I'm going to read for you verses 1 and 2. Paul says this, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. We're going to pause there just for a moment. So Paul says two things right at the start of this. Uh, The first is he says, preach the word, okay? Use the Bible, the tool that I've given you, the account of who Christ is and what God has done for you in our world and in our history. He says, use that tool to change hearts in the world. So the first thing he says is preach the word, and he says in season and out of season. Now, um, who exactly is Paul talking to in our text? And you can you get a little sense of it because he says, um, um, I give you this charge. Here's the amazing thing about this selection from 2 Timothy. I've never actually preached on it on a Sunday morning in front of a congregation. And it's interesting because um, uh, actually verse 4 or 5 of this text is one of my favorite, one of the nearest and dearest passages of Scripture to my heart. Uh, And I have used this text multiple other times, but you want to know what's a little bit odd is not in a setting like this. You want to know where this text generally is most commonly used? It's in the installation of new pastors. Yeah, it's in the installation of new pastors, which, uh, fascinatingly enough, I've got a former classmate who's going to be installed at Highlands Ranch at the Lutheran Church there, um, and I'm I'm going to be able to preach on a text like this, right? You'll hear these words. And so we ask ourselves this morning, okay, Is Paul's words, is his charge just to pastors and to public ministry? Yes and no. It is true. That is who Paul was talking to, right? He was giving this charge to Timothy, a young pastor who was going to take God's word into the world, right? Who was going to outlive Paul. He was was building him up. He was encouraging him. He was helping him stand firm. So that is absolutely true that this is talking about 
uh, gospel ministry, public ministry in the word, right? Faithfulness and a charge to pastors that they use God's word to change hearts in congregations and in communities. So that absolutely is there. But here's what's fascinating. It doesn't just end there, does it? It doesn't start or end there, actually. It actually extends to each and every one of you. And here's how I know why. Paul says, preach the word, but we've heard that charge before. So if this is at the end of Paul's life, I, I want you to, I want you, I want you to um, rewind a little bit to the beginning of Paul's ministry. So if this is the sunset of his ministry, I want you to go to the beginning of Paul's ministry, specifically uh, in Acts chapter 8. It says this, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Okay, now why does this matter? This, this is the beginning of Paul's ministry. In fact, his name isn't even Paul yet. It's still Saul. And he was a Christian bounty hunter, right? And so Saul slash Paul was doing everything he could to snuff out the, the hope of the gospel, to put an end to this thing called Christianity and these believers that were following in the way of Christ. Paul did everything he could at the start of that to end it. This is the account of the stoning of Stephen, right? As he gave his life in service and in faith to his God above. And so we go back and something fascinating happens here. All except the apostles were scattered, right? Not pastors, not apostles, not public clergy, not those uh, like myself that, have been, that, that are so privileged to be able to deliver God's word to you in a full-time way. Um, but guess who got scattered? You did. You did. Everyone else was scattered, right? Uh, um, and, and fled to the known world and Mediterranean world at that time. And what did you do? What did they do? They preached the word wherever they went. And so Paul's charge to Timothy is just as much a charge to you and I, to you, as you preach the word and as you share that gospel, right? Um, I think in some ways maybe this is a good image of what happened in that early Christian church. I think Paul probably thought, um, if I can stamp out this fire in its infancy, if I can put an end to it right here and right now, then nothing's going to grow. And yet, what happens when you stamp on a fire the embers spread, don't they? And they spread all over the known world. And wherever believers went, they preached the word and shared Jesus Christ. And so when Paul talks to Timothy, he's talking to you. No matter where you are, no matter where you go, right? No matter what season you happen to be in, you have the opportunity to share forgiveness, right? Okay. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season, right? Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. That's us. That's you. But then Paul talks to us about how we're going to do that. And actually, verse 4 gives us just a beautiful kind of rundown of practical ways 
that we can share Christ with our communities, with the people we love. So I want to walk through that in verse 2 with you. And we're going to kind of take apart each and every one of these. So the first thing Paul talks about is preaching the word. And we touched on that. And maybe that becomes an assumption from us as believers. But there are many times when maybe that assumption is glossed over far too quickly. But the power to change hearts, the thing that changed your hearts, uh, wasn't how good a preacher a pastor was, right? Wasn't how warm or cold uh, a building is. Wasn't how soft seats were or how hard they were, right? Uh, wasn't any of those things. The, things. the thing that changed your heart was the word of God, right? Turning our hearts from darkness to light, revealing and opening up not only the reality of our own life and living, but more importantly, the reality and the life of Jesus Christ who laid down his life on the cross for you. So Holy Scriptures, open hearts, change hearts, right? That's the tool that we are able to travel with. And Paul goes on. He says, be prepared. Okay, what, is ex- what exactly does he mean by that? I don't think that's hard to understand, actually. He says, I want you to be prepared. If you prepare for a trip, you try to have everything that you need, right, or for what you'll encounter. He wants the same for us as believers. Now, that does not mean, and Paul does not say, be the most charismatic, be the most winsome, uh, have every last answer to every last question that anyone will ever ask of you, but he does say, and he does charge us to be prepared. To be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. And in God's word and with Christ, you are, right? That preparation comes through as as we meditate on, as we study God's word, as it is driven deeply into our hearts. God prepares us, prepares you for your mission fields, right? So be prepared. And the next three I want to lump together. Paul says, correct, rebuke, and encourage. Now, um, these are kind of interesting because he layers these on top of one another, and I think it's instructional for us as well. When we think about sharing God's word with those that are outside of our walls or within our own families, Paul says, correct, rebuke, and encourage, okay? Um, that word correct, actually, maybe the, the, the more full definition is to bring to light, right? Um, so to reveal, to open up, to say, here, here are some things maybe you haven't thought about. Here are some, some revelations. Let's Let's pull back the veil on some of these things. Let's talk honestly um, um, with one another and inspect our own hearts, right? So correct is that idea of, of shedding light on. Rebuke is probably exactly what it sounds like. It actually is taking a stand and saying there are things that are right and good and there are things that are not, that are not beneficial. There is, there is, there is sin, right? There's also salvation in Christ, right? And so rebuke means that you actually do stand on something. You don't stand for nothing. You stand on God's word and on God and he stands with you, right? So that's that second one. The last one though is encouraging. That one's got a little more of a positive aspect to it, doesn't it? It means building up, right? It means means giving the right words at the right time to encourage somebody. And you probably have felt words like that. Think back in your own life, uh, maybe as a, as a young child or even as an adult, um, and think of the, how the wind, how wind is blown into your sails, 
by the simple encouragement of somebody that you admire, love, or respect. I bet you that there are moments, uh, maybe when you went through, through school, where a teacher took you aside and encouraged you in just such a way that you've never forgotten it, right? That's what encouragement does, doesn't it? And Paul says, as believers, we are encouragers. We build one another up. We wrap our arms around one another, right? We build. So, okay? Next one, though. We do that with patience. And actually, I like this one because not only is it patience, and, and that word patience, I like the, the definition, patience is long-suffering. Like it, so it's, it's draw, patience is drawn out over time. Okay, so it's not demanding your time frame, but it says, it says I'm going to work on, on your time frame, long-suffering, over time. And as if Paul wanted to like double down on us being more patient, he adds the word great in front of it, right? Now, we're trying to glean insight into Paul, um, but maybe he knows a little bit about us, right? That patience is probably difficult for each and every one of us and difficult to put into place. And so Paul kind of takes it another step and says, believers, missionaries, I don't want you to just be patient. I want great patience, right? Great long-suffering. A, a long-term view of individuals as souls, as souls and their lives, right? As we interact and as we share Christ with those uh, who are lost without it, we do this over a long period of time and we do it with great patience, Okay, and last one, careful instruction. What's Paul talking about here? I think it's simply this. It's that as believers, we are thinking and that we listen and that we consider. I think this is why that's important. Because far too often, maybe we as believers are characterized as anything but those things. Right? As, as um, believers that are just blindly following something that they've never thought through, they've never asked questions about, and they've never stopped long enough to even listen to. I think far too often maybe that is the characterization that we get as believers. But what's Paul talking about? He says, no, careful instruction. So what does that mean for you and I? It means we actually know what is on the pages of Scripture. Not just what we assume is there or what the world around us tells us is there, but you actually have read it and meditated on it and dug into it, right? That you have asked those questions of yourselves and of your own hearts, that you've considered these questions, that you have struggled with these things as well, and that you have found a Savior and a Christ who has answered those questions on a far deeper level than the answers that our world around us can give. So when Paul talks about careful instruction means we as believers are are thinking and we listen and we're considerate, right? Those are the things Paul asks of us to do. So who is he talking to? Well, he's talking to you, right? To us. How are we to do that? Great patience, careful instruction, right? But why, right? Let's go on to our next few verses here. Paul says this, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth 
and turn aside to myths. Now, this is interesting because Paul, remember the setting of Paul. He probably literally saw the world burning around him and he had surely seen Christians being burned around him, being put to death, crucified, beheaded, all of those things. He had seen that happening. And so he is realistic and he knows that as you go out, as you um, share Christ in those ways, there will be pushback. There will be temptations. He talks about that in 3 and 4 here. And the fascinating part in verse 4, he says they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Paul gives you directions of both of those. And I think that's purposeful. Because he realizes something that all of us know as well. Um, um, it isn't that we just turn away from Christ. You always turn towards something else. It's often said, everyone worships. The only question is, what do you worship? What is your guiding principle? What pattern or living guides your life, right? How you treat others, the path you're on, the things you invest in, all of those things. See, everyone worships. Everyone follows something or someone the only question we get to ask is what or who it is. Paul understood that as well, right? That if we turn aside from the truth, there isn't just an emptiness that is left, right? We will naturally turn toward something else. So Paul says, let's, let's dig deeper. Let's answer the deeper questions of that turning away and show a truth, right? That is, that is uh, answers life's questions on a level that isn't just surface. And I think we can do that. I think Paul urges us to do that. Because any of the things that we follow in this life, whether it's our career, a spouse, right, uh, respect in the workplace, maybe finances, a pursuit of pleasure, all of those things, sooner or later, all of those will let us down, will kick us in the knees, right, and will go by the wayside. That stands in stark contrast to Christ. Right? Christ does not cut and run, uh, not when things get difficult, not when the season of your life gets difficult. In fact, that's when he doubles down and he takes us by the hand and in fact, at times, he may even be carrying us. That's the God we get to share with the world around us. A God that has depth and breath, a God that entered our world in Jesus Christ uh, to lift us from our brokenness, from a, a world and a life at times that may feel as though it's on fire. That's precisely the reason why Christ came. Came for you and the world around us. Right? And that's why I say this letter to Timothy is hopeful. Because listen to how Paul ends it here. Paul says this, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Uh, Paul kind of gives us this idea of, of um, I recognize that life is going to be difficult, but don't stop being who you are and doing the things that actually brings life into the lives of the people around you, right? It is this long-term view of our living in Christ. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, once described the gospel like uh, um, a warm spring shower that drops its rain and the flowers bloom, right? But at times we see that move off as well. Paul recognizes that. He knows that there will be times when it, 
in an earthly sense, seems easier to share our faith versus harder to share our faith. And yet, what is the charge Paul gives to Timothy and you and I? He says, keep doing these things, right? Discharge all the duties, right? Continue sharing Christ with a world and with a culture and with a nation that desperately needs it. And our eyes are always kept on eternity. Because here's how Paul finishes. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time of my departure is near. So he clearly understands, I've got some gray hairs. It seems as though my earthly life is going to be coming to an end. But I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. You want to know who he's talking about there? You. Yeah, he's talking about you, right? And what does he look forward to? A crown of righteousness. So I don't know what season in life you are right now. I don't know if it feels as though your life is on fire. (laughs) I don't know if it feels as though maybe uh, culturally our world is on fire. Paul knew what that looked like, and yet he still points us to this, to that crown of righteousness. Not earned by us, not deserved, but won by Jesus Christ on the cross for you. And that is, that is a sure thing, right? That is our destination because of Christ's perfect life in your place. And so Paul can endure all things. You can endure all things. Be long-suffering. Um, do these things because your eyes are on that crown of righteousness in eternity, which is never in doubt, right? Heaven. Uh, if you go through Yellowstone, uh, there's a couple signs like this, um, and I think they're kind of funny. Uh, naturally receded by wildfire in 1988. What are they conceding? What is the, the Yellowstone Park conceding? They didn't do much, did they? <laughs> yeah. And so, and all those prognosticators that said Yellowstone Park is going to die, like this could be the end of Yellowstone Park, um, it wasn't. <laughs> Because God had plans and God had purposes and he used those seeds and he used that fire, in fact, to spread it and make Yellowstone possibly more healthy than it's ever been. The same is true for you and I in our lives as believers. You will go through seasons. Some feel as though it's on fire. Other times you'll see growth. But in the end, you know that your Lord and Savior walks with you through it all and that you have a God that loves life, that creates life and changes hearts. Your hearts are an example of it. And we get the opportunity to sow those seeds in the hearts and in the lives of our loved ones and our communities. May the Lord bless us. May the Lord bless you as you do that. Amen.